jingle, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut. You're gonna be our favorite nut. We'll have a lot of little oh by golly. Then we'll put them in the follies. By jingle, said by gosh, by gee. By Jiminy, please don't bother me. So they all went away singing oh by gee, by gosh, by gum. Hello, and welcome to the American Writers. 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be talking about um, Uncle Tom's Children by Richard Wright. This was first published in 1938 um, and had four short stories in it. Um, Those four, four short stories were Big Boy Leaves Home, Down by the Riverside, Long Black Song, and Fire and Cloud. Um, and then it was republished in 1940, I think maybe in the aftermath of the success of Native Son, which was published in 1942. And then there was an edition of The Ethics of Living Jim Crow, which was a um, like an autobiographical sketch almost, um, not really a story, and then um, Bright and Morning Star. So what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to break this up into two parts because it's about 200 pages, um, and I'll look at... Ethics of leaving, Living Jim Crow, Big Boy Leaves Home, and Down by the Riverside first. Uh, and then in the next episode, I'll talk about the last three stories. So the name of this obviously comes from Uncle Tom's Cabin, and that's kind of a pun on that. Um, but of course, this is set in the Jim Crow era, so it's like really Uncle Tom's children or grandchildren. It's, it's about the aftermath of slavery, what black people faced after um, slavery ended. And I just want to say right on the surface, like obviously, as I mentioned last time, uh, when I was looking at law today, Richard Wright is super, super angry throughout this. Like you just get the sense and that's what makes these engaging and quick. They're actually very quick reads because they just jump off the page, how powerful they are. There's no like dry moments. Everything is like on a fast pace because you just feel like this really high level of resentment and anger underneath everything. And I, and I think to the degree that Richard Wright is writing for a white audience, he's trying to warn. It's kind of like that poem, like a dream deferred is going to explode. You get that feeling of, of that, but it's not even about the dream so much. It's just very few of these characters dream of some kind of alternative to Jim Crow. Instead, they're just living it. They're just living in this shit. And their only kind of response is bitterness and anger. Um, and it, it comes off all the time. There are, in, in the stories we've read, there's just like violence in all of them. Um, not just violence against black characters, which is the high, what he's highlighting here. He's highlighting how Jim Crow's enforced by the threat of violence and actual violence lived out. But also the dreams of violence, the fantasies of violence by his characters right so these are thoughts that richard wright himself must have had living in jim crow at some point um, because he describes them so accurately but he's i think he's trying to suggest that every time your your system every time you you talk down to these people every time you talk down to us every time you threaten us with violence. Every time you inflict violence on us, it's like we're capable of those that same violence. We're capable of that same hatred. We're, we're, capable, we're just as capable of these things as you. So we actually see white characters killed in both of the stories I want to look today. And that's the, now it's not out of 
they're not killed. They're killed in self-defense in both cases. But the response is to violently murder, you know, where one of our main characters in response to a, a, a killing in self-defense. But the point Richard Wright, want, I think, wants to make is this, this we're capable of violence, too. And so you've kind of got to be careful that this system is not sustainable because of this resentment and the you know, it's breeding hatred. It's breeding violence. Because it is itself a violent system and it's enforced by violence. Um, but anyways, um, really good book, by the way. It's really excellent. Um, you know, I'm really glad they didn't just start with Native Son because, you know, not having read these before, it's, it's, I would, it would have been a shame if I had missed them. Law Today is great, but this is... Lord Today is much more just about, you know, not just because it's set in Chicago. So it's much more about like the great migration communities and how that became kind of a prison for our main character. These are all set in the South and they're straight up about like Jim Crow. They're definitely set in in the setting of, of segregation. And we see it like really literally on every page here. Um, we start with The Ethics of Living Jim Crow, this autobiographical sketch. And this is just like nine short chapters that talk about experiences he had in the Jim Crow South. Now, of course, eventually he does go to Chicago, um, and that's going to be the inspiration for Lord today. But he spent um, the early part of his life in the South, right? So, like, the first scene we got is, is them just being kids, playing, and throwing cinders at each other um, as, as ammunition for their play war. And then the white kids came and um, they started playing with them the same game, but they threw bottles. So they had like they had the money to spend to throw bottles around. And there's like a class dimension there too. But he gets scolded by his parents, his mother, for fighting with the white kids. Because, you know, it's like kind of like what could happen if you actually struck one of these kids. Um, then we have a scene where he's, uh, they're all pretty short, where he saw um, police um, or no, he saw someone uh, drag a black woman into a store and the policeman just looked on doing nothing. Um, and so she's basically beat up by that. And then he asked the other black people about this. He asked his friends about that, and they just kind of say, like, she's lucky because she's lucky she wasn't raped, too. Um, we have a story here where he's, like, tries to hitch right after his bike breaks, and he just gets kind of, like, pushed off the truck and, and insulted for, for, for even suggesting he could ride in the, in the, in the, in the car with, with white people, even in the back. Uh, much of the, the, the sketches here deal with his life as in a hotel. And here we have, um, you know, where a lot of the rooms are rented out by prostitutes and they have to like go in and serve them and bring cigarettes and bring drinks and bring room service essentially. And often they're naked and they, they get trained not to look at these white naked women because they could get in a lot of trouble for doing that. Or we see one person get castrated, one of the bellboys or servants at the, the black servants at the at the hotel is castrated for sleeping with one of the prostitutes but at the same time um the black women working there are sexually harassed 
and raped and constantly by the white managers. Um, so that double standard is, is a, oh yeah, you know, he, there's a situation, I'll read this one. They're all pretty short. He says, one night as just I was about to go home, I met one of the Negro maids. She lived in my direction and we fell into walk part of the way home. As we passed the white night watchman's, as we passed the night watchman, he slapped the maid on her buttocks. I turned around in maze. The watchman looked at me with a long, hard, fixed under stare. Suddenly he pulled out his gun and asked, Edward, don't you like it? I hesitated. I asked, yeah, don't you like it? He asked again, stepping forward. Yes, sir, I mumbled. Talk like it then. Oh, yes, sir, I said with as much hardiness as I could muster. Outside, I walked ahead of the girl, ashamed to face her. She caught me. She caught up with me and said, don't be a fool. You couldn't help it. The watchman boasted of having killed two Negroes in self-defense. Yet in spite of all of this, the life in the hotel ran with an amazing smoothness. It would have been impossible for me to detect, for a stranger to detect anything. The maids, the hall boys, and the bellboys were all smiles. They had to be. Um, so these are like the lessons of Jim Crow. Now he, end, he ends this. He talked a little bit about black history and how he learned it. And how he learned a like, different narrative of, of black America than what Jim Crow was teaching. So he's learning Jim Crow. He's learning the rules. But in the last page, it's like, I kind of learned another lesson, too, by reading books. I, I, I ended up having the chance to get a little bit of education, a little bit self-taught, and I learned a different story of black America, right? But then, this is how he ends. Um, how do Negroes feel about the way they have to live? How do they discuss it when alone among themselves? I think this question can be answered in a single sentence. A friend of mine who ran an elevator once told me, Lord, man, if it wasn't for them police... And on lynch mobs, there wouldn't be nothing but uproar down here, end quote. So he ends with like this feeling of anger that if not for the threat of violence enforcing Jim Crow, it would come down through like, you know, resentment and anger. The only thing holding this up is this violence. Um, so he's exposing it as the brutal system that it, that it really was. All right. So let's get into the stories. The first one, Big Boy Leaves Home. Um, I just I just got to recommend you read these because they're so good. They're really amazing stories. And I've actually already read um, Long Black Long Black Song and Fire and Cloud, and they're just as good. Um, Long Black Song especially is really, really powerful. Um, I think of these two, though, Down by the Riverside is my least favorite of them. Big Boy Leaves Home is a little more um, impactful in a way because our, our character survives and our character, like, see someone else or hear someone lynched it's really kind of actually kind of frightening so anyways we have four boys um just doing that kind of back and forth talking like we saw in lord today he spends a couple pages with that kind of stream of consciousness collective conversation which he's really good at documenting it's the first like five pages of the story but eventually they they find they're at a swimming hole on the land of a white man and one of them warns we shouldn't swim here, but they eventually agree to try swimming there. They take off their clothes, put them by the tree, and start swimming and playing there. And and they're joking and laughing about the the white man who owns this 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 land, even saying he's at home thinking about his jelly roll, which uh, is slang for 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 a woman, I think. I'm thinking of that that was it that Van Morrison song, right? What's it called again? 
Is that and it's, and it stoned me where there's that that line about Jelly Roll and I think that's referring to like a jazz singer or something. But I kind of always knew it was slang for like a vagina or something. So I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I remember hearing it. It was slang for a vagina. That seems to be how it's used here, anyways. But um, they basically justify trespassing, saying that white people have all the swimming holes and we don't, and black people don't, and that's not fair. But eventually a white woman, a young white woman, who turns out to be like the young wife of this, this landowner who was a, a soldier. His dad was like a, in the Confederate Army, I think. And then he served in the U.S. This, this man served in the, in, the, in the U.S. Army. Anyway, he had a uniform. And, but this young white woman is there outside and she comes across the boys and they try to like talk her and say like we're leaving we just need our clothes but they're naked of course so she flips out she starts screaming you know that there's she uses the n-word that they're in here and the owner the, the man comes out with a gun and he actually shoots two of these young men um the other two including um it's it's bobo and our and our main point of view character, Big Boy, fight him, um, manage to get the gun. Big Boy gets the gun and is able to shoot him. And they are able to escape. But, of course, they're shooting in self-defense. He's already killed two of the, these other boys and left them dead in the, in the, in the pool. All right, in the, in the watering, water hole. The lake, little pond, whatever it is. Um, and they get away. And they immediately go home and... And go their separate ways. Big boy goes. To, and we follow big boy as he goes home, and we see him talk to his parents. And he's afraid, death, deathly afraid, that he's going to be lynched. So he already learned the lessons of Jim Crow. He knows the penalty for killing a white man this way, even if it's self-defense, is is violence um, and the lynch mob. And so they're like, "What are we going to do?" And the plan is basically to get him out of town, to get big boy out of town, uh, and hopefully. Things will settle down in the future, and he won't be be lynched for this. But uh, they don't have really time to prepare it, so they, they bring in like the preacher and they bring in other people for help, tell the story, and eventually, Big Boy's like, "Well, I know a place I can hide out for the night." And he goes there. It's over by the tracks, and he hides out there overnight. Um, but while this happens, he hears the lynching of of Bobo. He hears Bobo being like lynched. He doesn't see it. He just hears it. And it's really horrific because he's hiding out, doesn't want to be seen. He's terrified to be seen, but he hears this. And all everything you've heard about lynching, about the collecting of souvenirs, the fire, the rope, the hanging, the singing, the, the public camaraderie of it all. I haven't seen it described better. I've read several books about lynching. You know, I'm familiar with it. I've read primary sources before about this, but... I've never seen it done so well. In fact, he used that same stream of consciousness conversation that he did when with the boys early in the story, but he repeats it, but now it's like this white mob. And while the characters at the beginning were just having fun and being very playful and teasing each other, in this in when we it's this technique is reused, it's all vitriol, it's all violent, it's all disgusting, it's all hate and It's pretty horrific. But we also get into Big Boy's head. And Big Boy is fantasizing of getting a gun and shooting each of these, every member of the lynch mob. So, again, he never forgets. And I think that's true in all these stories that I've read so far. 
Richard Wright never wants the reader to forget that violence is always under the surface in the thoughts of black Americans as a solution. They know they can't. They know they're, they're punished for acts of violence, for defending themselves, that they will be punished. They will be murdered for defending themselves. But the feeling that if I'm going to go out, I, I should take some with, with me is always not far under the surface. And I, I think that's what he really wants the readers to come away understanding. Um, but anyways, after that night, he is picked up by um, uh, the, this guy, Will, who was arranged by the family to pick him up in a truck when he leaves town. And we don't know what's going to happen to him in the end. He, he just drives away. But he gets the story of from another person that it was Bobo that was lynched. So that's the story of Big Boy Leaves Home. A really good one. Worth checking out. I, I might teach this someday if I can. I'm not sure if I can get the students to read this much, though. But it, it's, these, these stories are so sharp, they just jump off the pages. It's almost like, I, I actually haven't had this experience of reading in a long time, where it's like the words just sort of flow into your mind, and, and you can kind of just rapidly turn pages just because it's so sharp. And, you know, it's like effortless reading this. Richard Wright, I think, is a really, really good writer. Anyways, next we have Down by the Riverside, which is a more complicated plot, I suppose, um, but very similar in a way. We have a black man killing a white man in self-defense, and then he's not lynched. He's shot by police as he tries to run away. Um, but almost every other beat is the same, in which we have this white people refusing to listen to black people's side of the story. We have the penalty for fighting back and defending oneself being death. Um, we have uh, kind of this... Greek tragedy kind of situation where where people are put in a situation where they not by their own fault necessarily or they make a small mistake that turns that's punished with death I guess that's one way to think about it so like with big boy goes home they probably shouldn't have swam in that pool you know they were trespassing but it, it's not the whatever crimes there the punishments shouldn't be death right um, and it was for three of the four boys and for the fourth exile for just, for, you know, just for the crime of swimming in someone else's water hole on, the, on their land. And down by the riverside, it's, it's someone doing anything to save his wife's life. So we are set, the setting is a flood. The whole town is flooded. And meanwhile, our main character here, um, Man, that's his last name, he's just called Man throughout the story. His wife has been in labor for four days. And she's sick, and he's desperate to get to a hospital. So the plan is to buy a boat. Um, so one of the family members goes and sells a donkey, gets $15 for the donkey, which isn't enough to buy a boat. A boat at one point is priced at $50 if you need to have a price comparison. So he steals a boat instead, and man's like, you shouldn't have done that because they know who owns the boat. The boat is, these are small towns. People know what, you know, whose boat it is. But he's like, why did you do this? Because now he almost has to try. Because once the boat was stolen, he has to try to use it to save his wife's life. Because otherwise, stealing it, what was the point of it? But he, he, he really knows it's really dangerous to do this. But nevertheless, he, gets, he puts his family on the boat. And well, he puts his mother-in-law, his wife, and himself to go on the boat to try to get to the hospital. And... There's this like major feat of strength where he has to like row against the current, trying to get the hospital. But before he does, he's intersected by the Hendrixes. The Hendrixes are the ones who own the boat. 
Um, he's challenged. Now, he's challenged at gunpoint, mind you. So it's uh, the threat of violence is there again. Um, and he brought his own gun, and he defends himself and shoots Hendricks. But he, there are witnesses in the house. He makes it all the way back to the, the hospital, only to find the doctors tell him. And there's a, it's a Jim Crow section on the hospital. He has to go to the, the colored only entrance of the hospital. But he gets there, and the doctor's like, well, she's already dead. So he loses his unborn child and his wife. And the mother-in-law is beside herself. And then they're like, well, what are we going to do? And then the, the authorities say, well, you are drafted to help with the rescue effort and help with the sand, you know, piling up the sandbags and everything like that. Because they have to, like, save the generator and the power plant. There's, you know, it makes sense. There's urgent work to be done. While there's up in the hills some refugee camps kind of set up for the rest of the family they go there he's drafted man is drafted and he has to his job is to get on a boat and they actually commandeer his boat give him 40 dollars for it of course it's not his boat but he takes the money um and then he goes to save families now the family he ends up saving is hendrix's family um so a bit of irony again tragedy these stories have that kind of greek tragedy tragedy feel to them he returns uh Eventually, he's found out, though, that Hendrix is who saw the murder or saw the self-defense act. I, I don't think it was murder. He was clearly defending himself. They, re- they, they see him as the one who killed their father, call him out. And then he's, again, forced, just like Big Boy, and is forced to flee. Now, he's shot down by police as, as, as he runs away. So, anyways, that's what happens in those two stories. Um, Overall, I think they come together really nicely. A little bit repetitive between the two, but I think uh, the it keeps the thematic center and the heart of what Richard Wright is trying to say right on the surface of the minds. And, and it's really some of the sh- fastest moving, sharpest, engaging prose I've, I've read in quite a while. So definitely a worthwhile book to pick up. Uh, in the next episode, I will finish up my look at Uncle Tom's Children with uh, the three remaining stories which of what I've read so far are just as good and engaging. Um, and I'll be excited to share my thoughts about that with you in a few days. So uh, that's it for now. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. And every night they sang in the pale moonlight Oh, by gee, by gosh, by gum, by jaw Oh, by jingo, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut You're gonna be our favorite nut We'll have a lot of little oh by golly, then we'll put them in the follies.